in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? You see the questions are coming thick and fast, and there aren't really answers to them because he expects us to know the answers in the light of what we've already learned. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quote from Psalms. We'll get back to it. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. And what a wonderful word it is. What then shall we say to these things? And what we're going to do is, and and it's what Paul wants us to do, is he wants us us to arrive at several conclusions, um, each of which will help us to get through suffering. So let's begin with the first question. Who can be against us? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the expected answer there? I'll give you 10 out of 10 if you give the right answer. Nobody. Nobody. No one. Nothing. Nothing in the whole of creation. But just look at the condition that's necessary for this to apply. If God is for us. Who can be against us? No one can be against us if God is for us. And who is he referring to here? Who's the us? It is those that he's been referring to in verse 28, those that have been foreknown, those that have been predestined, called, justified, and will end up being glorified. It's God's elect. It's us. We are the ones that God is for. And if God is for us, who can be against us? But maybe you're sort of thinking to yourself, well, just look at the example of Paul's life. It's Paul writing here, isn't it? My word, there was so much against him. Do you remember we read a few weeks ago that he was beaten with, um, with, with whips? He was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was put into prison so many times. He, he lost count. He was shipwrecked. What is Paul getting at here? Because clearly there was a lot happening against Paul. What he's saying here is that no matter what comes against us, whether it's cancer, whether it's illness, whether it's any of these things, nothing will succeed against us. Folks, have you ever wondered what would constitute success in coming against a Christian? What would it be? How would Satan think that he had been successful? Would he think that he'd been successful by killing us? No, because that would send us straight 
to the presence of God. In fact, he thought he was succeeding against Jesus when he killed him, but in actual fact, he was shooting himself in the foot and he ended up doing the one thing that would save all of God's elect. And so death cannot bring success against us. The only thing, folks, that could ever cause Satan to succeed against us is to cause us to turn our backs on Jesus. And that's not going to happen because nothing that is brought against us will succeed. Why? Because God is for us and we are members of his elect. We're members of his family. So you can expect with absolute assurance that you're going to cross the finish line. Isn't that good news? I know that there is nothing that is going to happen in my life that will succeed against me. I'm going to make it across the finish line. I'm going to stand before the Father and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, because I'm his son and he's going to make sure that it happens. Nobody can succeed against us. Next question. Will God graciously give us all things? It says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So will he give us graciously all things? The answer is yes. Folks, this is a bit like somebody coming up to me and asking me, if I can bench press 50 kgs. Now, I know it's a question that you, you, you probably wouldn't ask me. <laughs> Just looking at my little chicken wings that I have here. <laughs> but hypothetically, if you came to me and asked me, Ian, can you bench press 50 kgs? And I said to you, I can bench press 500 kgs. What would I be saying? I can bench press 50 kgs. And that's exactly what God is saying here. He says, he who did not spare his own son. If he could do that, if he could do that most amazing and difficult thing, then of course, he can graciously give us all things. It's easy peasy for God. But what does Paul mean by all things? That's an interesting one, isn't it? He graciously gives us all things. Does that mean that he will give us perfect health? Does it mean that he will give us security? Does it mean that he'll give us a fancy car? What are these all things that God will graciously give us? And you know, it can't mean that he's only going to give us good things in inverted commas. Because if you look at verses 35 and 36, it's clear that Christians are going to be suffering all sorts of hardship and pain. And also in the context of chapter 8, we're not going to be spared the groans of this present age. Do you remember early on we talked about the fact that creation was groaning? Then we talked about the fact that we're groaning, and then we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit is groaning. Folks, we wouldn't be groaning if there weren't tough things, hard things happening in our lives. So what does Paul actually mean then? I'll just look back there at verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Whether good things or whether bad things. For those who are called according to his purpose. If we've been called by God, if we love God, then he is going to work 
all things for our good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is sovereign over all things that happen to you, whether it's good things or whether it's bad things. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we also were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And because God is in control of all things, all things will work together for your good. But folks, we sometimes need to be reminded what our ultimate good is. We think that our ultimate good, maybe in certain contexts, would be perfect health, or a new car, or a better house. But in actual fact, the way Paul defines it here is that What we really need is to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. That is our greatest good. And God will use anything, absolutely anything, to make sure that that happened, just as he did in my own life. Use things that the casual observer would have looked at and said that was for Ian's harm. That was for the harm of his family. But God meant it for good. So who can be against us? Nobody. Nobody can succeed against us. doesn't mean that we're not going to be, um, people aren't going to stand up and situations aren't going to stand against us, but nothing will succeed. God will graciously give us all things. Absolutely, he will. Third question, who shall bring any charge? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Notice that's the first time that Paul uses the word election in the Bible. It's not an invention of our own. It's there in the Bible. Who will bring any charge against God's elect, those that God has chosen, those that he has in his family? Then he says, it is God who justified. The point here is that if, for example, in Zimbabwe, somebody brings a charge against me and it goes to the magistrate's court and I'm found guilty and I appeal to the high court and I'm found guilty and I appeal to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court declares me innocent, then it doesn't matter what the magistrate's court said. It doesn't matter what the high court said, because the Supreme Court is the highest court of authority, and God himself is the highest court of authority in the whole of creation. And so if God says that we are right and in right standing with him, if he says that we are innocent, then nobody can bring a charge against us. Who can be against us? Nobody. Will God graciously give us all things? He will. Everything that we need to grow into the likeness of Christ and to cross the finish line. He's going to make sure that he trains you up so that the next hardship that comes, you are prepared for it. And then that hardship will make you prepared for the next one. This life is a marathon race. It is one hardship after another, but nothing can be against us. God will graciously give us everything that we need to make sure that we cross the finish line. Who will bring any charge against us? No one. Nobody can make a charge against you, stick. And remember, of course, that Paul had all sorts of charges brought against him. But in terms of the highest authority in creation, he was innocent. Verse 34. The next question, who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Remember we heard earlier on that Christ is, that the Holy Spirit is praying for us with groans that words cannot express. Do you remember that from earlier on in in Romans chapter 8? We are in the grip of a praying God. It's not only the Holy Spirit who's praying for us, but it's Christ who's praying for us as well. Folks, no one can condemn you. No one can declare you guilty. And Paul gives three reasons here. The first one is that Christ died. Can you see it there in verse 34? Christ is the one who died. Then the second reason is that Christ was raised. And then the third reason is that Christ is interceding for us. Let's look at the first one. Why can no one condemn us? Because Christ died. Well, remember, we are answering these questions in the light of these things, the things that came in in Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. In other words, the controlling power of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law or the controlling power of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in Christ's flesh when he died on the cross. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that's why we're not going to be condemned. It's because Christ died. Second one is that Christ was raised from the dead. Now, it might be possible to look at Christ and say, well, yes, it's all very well to say that he was a sinless man and that he's an acceptable sacrifice for my sins because he never committed any sins. But how do we know that? The reason why we know that is that death could not hold on to him. His resurrection vindicated him as a sacrifice in our place. Because he was raised from the dead, we know that he was a perfect acceptable sacrifice for us. Christ died. Christ was raised. (laughs) Christ is at the, I love the way he just builds here. Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Do we grasp the significance of being at the right hand of the Father? That, that That is a position of supreme authority and power. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he is interceding for us, his children. There's some lovely examples in the Bible of Jesus praying for us, and here are some of them. John 17, verse 9. This is Jesus praying for his disciples and for the church. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. So Jesus says, this is a huge privilege that we have, and we don't deserve it. You know, God doesn't pray for everybody. Jesus doesn't pray for everybody. He says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. What a privilege, folks, to know that God, Jesus, is praying for you. 
John 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. In other words, out of the, the trouble and the hardship and the sinfulness of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Remember, that was the ultimate success would be for Satan to try and get us um, so that we, don't, we turn our backs on God. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them. In other words, make them holy. Make them like Christ. That's the whole purpose that God has of working in our lives. Sanctify them in the truth, and your word is truth. And then just a last example of Jesus interceding for someone. And I've just... I can so relate to Simon Peter. You know, before the Holy Spirit came into his life, before God had started and completed his work of sanctification in Simon Peter, he, 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 he just was a bit of a, a lost cause. Um, 22 verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. What did he pray? He didn't pray that Simon wouldn't be sifted like wheat. He didn't pray that Simon wouldn't be experience something that Satan brought. No, he didn't. He said he, um, that, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In other words, that you would keep going until you cross the finish line. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. I'm sure he had so much to offer after he had been filled with the Holy Spirit and learnt how he could submit himself to God and avail himself of the strength that he needed, not to be a bit of a lost cause, but to be a, a, a great rock in the church. Questions. Who can be against us? Nobody can succeed against us. Will God graciously give us all things? Yes, he will. Who shall bring a charge against us? No one can make any charge stick. Who will condemn us? No one. Because Christ died, Christ was raised, and he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Last question. Who shall separate us? This is my favorite. Who shall separate us from Christ's love? Verse 35. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are not just conquerors, but more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm going to look at three observations here, and we'll go into them in a little bit of detail. First of all, the first observation is that the suffering of verse 35 is real. It's not hypothetical. We're not talking hypothetical here. Second thing is that not only are we conquerors, but we are more than conquerors. Third thing, Paul writes who, and then he lists a whole lot of what's. Isn't that curious? Who will separate us? And then he lists a whole lot of what's. Famine, nakedness, danger. Why the personal pronoun? So first of all, if we believe that the suffering of verse 35 is hypothetical, then what do we make of verse 36? For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You know, Paul wouldn't have put that in there if he didn't think 
that sometimes it does happen to Christians, these things. Verse 40, uh, Psalm 44 verse 20 says, If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. So these are people whom God knew intimately. He knew the secrets of their heart. He knew that they hadn't spread out their hands to a foreign God. He knew that they hadn't forgotten the name of God. Yet, contrary to expectation, we would have expected that someone who's not worshipping a foreign God, who is faithful to God, wouldn't have experienced famine or nakedness or any of these things. But he says here, yet, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Christians may, and they do, experience in two different degrees, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and the sword. However, let's move to the second observation. It says, in. In all these things. God doesn't necessarily take us out of these things, but in these things, he takes us through these things. In these things, we are more than conquerors. Have you ever wondered why he said more than conquerors? What would it look like to be more than a conqueror? I, th- I like to think of it in, the, in these terms. Um, suppose someone has come against me. He's opposing me. He's my enemy. I would be a conqueror if I killed him and he lay dead at my feet, isn't it? But I would be more than a conqueror if he didn't die, but instead he stood up and started working for my good, isn't it? That would make him or that situation, that would make me into more than a conqueror. And that is God's promise, isn't it? He promises us in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together. They become our servants for our good. That's why we're more than conquerors, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then the third observation is this idea that there is who shall separate us from the love of God, and then he lists a whole lot of things. Well, who is it that's behind those things? It's Satan. Ultimately, it is Satan. He's the one who's always trying his best to get us to turn away, to give up. But God is on our side, and he makes sure that we aren't. Now, let's just consider, carry on considering Paul's answer to this question, who will separate us from Christ's love? And let's move on to verse 38. Why are we more than conquerors? Because nothing, absolutely nothing, he mentions 10 things here, can separate us from the love of God. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, as I've often thought, well, I'm sure that nothing can stop God loving me. But maybe love is an emotion. So, so he's experiencing this emotion of love for me, and nothing's going to stop that, just as I would never stop loving my child. But what happens if his expression of that love is stopped in some way? What happens if I love Catherine, but she needs help and I can't actually help her? Because love is an action, isn't it? It's a commitment expressed in action. 
So is there a possibility that some of these 10 things could actually block our experience of God's love in a very real way? And we, of course, we want to experience him in a real way. We have to if we're going to make it across the finish line. I, I like to think of it in terms of this picture here. I think it's on the next slide, is it? There we, there we go. Um, so there is God on one side. There's his love. And it's like a river that's flowing to us. And it's coming down to his elect, to his children at the other end of the river. Is it possible that any of those ten things can be a barrier preventing God's love from reaching us? And of course, what he says here is that nothing, nothing can stop that from happening. In, in fact, it's almost like he doesn't even take that barrier away. He just throws it into the stream and it gets carried along and it is used so that we can experience God's love. Notice that Paul starts off verse 38 with the words, I am sure. And that's an intentional parallel to what he said just a little bit before when he said, we know. Remember in verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. That's why those barriers can't can't stop God's love from getting to us because we know, we are sure that God works all things for our good. And so just in conclusion today, let's just go over those questions again. Who can be against us? Nobody can succeed against us. Will God graciously give us all things? Yes, everything we need to grow into the likeness of Christ because that is our ultimate good. That is for our ultimate good. Who shall bring any charge against us? No one. No one can make a charge stick against you. Who shall condemn us? No one. Because Christ died, because he was raised, because he's praying for us. Such a wonderful assurance. Who will separate us from Christ's love? Nothing. You know, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and the reason why he screamed out is because in that moment, he was separated from the love of, of God. Imagine what it must have been like for him. Separated from the love of God. And the reason why he was separated from the love of God is so that you never would have to be. It's such good news, folks. And I would like to say that as a response to this, we need to just give God everything. Why wouldn't we treasure him above all else if this is what he's like, if this is what he assures us? Why wouldn't we be completely obedient to him? Why wouldn't we take risks for him? Oh, Father God, it's going to be hard to, to love my mother-in-law in the way that you tell me in the Bible. Well, just take the risk, you know. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Why don't we live expansively? Why don't we, why don't we take risks? Why don't we give everything that we have, knowing that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God? No one can bring a charge against us. No one can condemn us. I would encourage you to live in the light of these truths, in the light of these realities. Um, and it's, oh, I think it's just, it'll be amazing to see what God does in our lives and in the life of our church if we would just begin to do that. Shall we pray?
would you just, I, I just asked the question, would you like to commit yourself to God in that way? Just wholeheartedly, without reservation. And I know that there's always a part of us, our fleshly part, that's afraid of doing that. Um, but if you'd like to do that, just in the capacity that you have at the moment, in the capacity that God has given you at the moment, um, then just let's do it. Father God, I want, I want to give you my life completely. I want to be completely committed to you. I want to commit every resource that you've given me to you and to your service and to be given in, in love for you and in love for other people. And we recognize that even in making that prayer, even saying that prayer, even making that commitment, that we'll only be able to do it with your help. So please come, Holy Spirit. Come and work with us um, right from the moment that we, that we leave the hall this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.